Once we do a clip, you never see it again. So we thought that was too good last week to pass up to give you the segue as to where we're at. Got your sermon notes in your bulletin. We're right in the middle of a discussion on raising children. Right in the middle of a family series, in the middle of a context of Colossians chapter 3, on what it's like to live the God-like life. We left off last Sunday morning. It's in your sermon notes. There's a lot of information that we share with you, but some of the foundational premises that we talked about was the fact that some of the greatest joys of your life, and at times, some of the deepest sorrows come within the context of family, right? Some of the highest highs of your life and some of the deepest waters you've ever walked through come within the context of family, whether it be raising children or whether it be raising parents at times. We all know that we've come from different aspects of life and go through different phases. And many in my generation are wondering what it's going to be like at the end of my parents' generation and what will I then end up doing. And that's been a huge level of discussion. At every phase of life, there is sorrow and there's amazing joy. I had a really good friend the other day that I was visiting in the hospital and over 80 years old and he said, I honestly... I didn't know it was going to be this tough near the end. I said, well, you know, the scripture said, if by reason of strength there is 80, if you live that long, there's strength, labor, and sorrow. He said, I'm absolutely aware of that. I just didn't know it would be so difficult. And another one on the other end of life, or the, the same end of life said to me the other day, look, all I know is I'm one step closer to heaven. So the longer I live, the more difficult it gets, and he's well aware of that, going on his 90s right now, has said, look, all I know is every day is another day closer to heaven. But at the beginning of life and near the end of life, there's a lot of difficulty in between, some amazing moments, and some really deep sorrow. Paul moves from marriage that we spent a couple of weeks on to parenting in Colossians chapter 3, and he said, children, obey your parents in everything, for it pleases the Lord. Now, you all remember, and I'm not going to do a series on this at all, but many older adults wrestle with that section of Scripture and wrestle with it as one of the Ten Commandments in regards to older parents or once I leave the house. It moves from obedience to respect because you've got to remember, you've got to back up and look at what Scripture says. And what Scripture says, when you get married, you leave your father and mother and you cleave into your wife. And so the relationship at that moment changes dramatically, but that's a whole other sermon. Fathers, verse 21, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. Now remember, the context of all of these verses come out of Colossians chapter 3 as we continue to give the Spirit of God control of our lives. Junk begins to fall away. We intentionally get rid of some things. Greed and anger and lying and filthy talk, and we intentionally embrace some characters. Some Christ-like qualities of compassion and humility and gentleness. Giving each other space to make mistakes. Forgive as we've been forgiven. And we cover all of that with love. And the best place to flesh that out or work it out comes within the context of the home. Matthew 7, if you have last Sunday's sermon notes, it was Matthew 7, not 27, says a wise man builds his house on a very solid foundation. Because it's not if the winds of life blow, it's going to happen. And life's going to get tough. And so you want to make sure that your house is built on a solid foundation. Because I'm telling you, the winds of life are going to blow. It's not if, it's when. And I want to make sure you're prepared. And so scripture has things all over it that give us some amazing advice from the Old to the New Testament. 
We spent a lot of time in Deuteronomy chapter 6 last week where this passage of Scripture said that if I really want to give a spiritual foundation and I want to build my house on a solid foundation, it begins with me as a parent. I've got to make sure that my relationship with God is what it needs to be. Is it going to be perfect? Of course not. If I were to ask you, do you wish your life in Christ was a little bit better? Well, we'd all say yes. I wish I prayed more, read the scripture more. There's always something to that, but it's got to start with us as parents. We are the ones that lay the foundation in the home. Now, many times it has happened the opposite way. I had a young guy come up to me after the service last Sunday morning who said, I'm just delighted as I look back when God got a hold of my life and I began to live it out and share it. My parents started coming here. Now they come on a regular basis. And that happens a lot. It's supposed to happen the other way around where we as parents are living it out and we're whetting the appetite for the next generation. And what they see in us, that's what they want. I said his powerful statement last Sunday morning, we teach what we know, but we reproduce what we are. I lead her to a book last Sunday morning, George Barna's Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions, that reminded us that the window to do this is really narrow. He said most kids are coming to faith in Christ by age 9 and developing their spiritual formation by age 13. We've got a lot of kids in 5th and 6th grade, 7th and 8th grade, who are making really powerful spiritual decisions. Over the last few weeks, numbers of them have come to faith in Christ and Brent last week and the week before began to let them share their testimony. He said it was absolutely captivating. As you listen to these fifth and sixth graders talk about their relationship with Jesus and how delighted they are in that relationship, it starts very young. And so our window of opportunity to be able to impact their lives is really short. And so we want to make sure that we do everything else within that context. One of the strengths of Community Alliance Church is our ministry to families. We do everything we possibly can to make sure that families have a lot of fun. On, on Tuesday night, we had 150 people gather together for family night. And it was a lot of fun. Look at this clip of one of the uh, experiments that they tried. I mean, they loaded those things up like a boat. And as many in it as possible, we had a ball that night, but we only had them one or two hours a week. And we're going to put all kinds of effort and love and tenderness and grace and guidance and direction into their lives, but we only have one to maybe two hours a week to be able to do that. So much of it starts within the context of the home, which is why Deuteronomy said, look, everywhere you go, talk about it when you get up in the morning. We're going to have family experience this morning and they're going to hear the value of the month called humility. And you as a parent have the opportunity all month long to say, how's that working? What'd you learn? Wasn't that fun? What was the point of that? What about today? How'd it work for you this week? When did you set yourself aside and make sure that you remain humble so that others could see Jesus in you? He said, it's got to be wherever you go. When you walk along the way, when you rise up, when you go to bed, the opportunity for you and I as parents to fill their emotional tanks and send them out into a world that's going to deplete it so that we make sure that we send them out full and then fill them up when they come home. Responsibility lies within us as parents. There's also a caution in Deuteronomy 6, which is where we left off last Sunday morning. And that is that if we're not careful, there's a tendency to take for granted or to even forget God's blessings. 
Which is why over and over and over again, you'll see a couple of phrases in the entire Old New Testament when he says, remember, remember, tell, share, pass along, remember. Tell them why. Tell them what God did. Tell them what you saw. Tell them what you experienced. Show them how God blessed you. How did God answer this prayer? What did God do? How did he reveal himself? Over and over again. One of the last statements to Jesus, from Jesus to his disciples was what? Remember me. Don't forget. And you and I know that we have a tendency to do that. We have a tendency to forget. Moses in those next few verses in Deuteronomy chapter 6 said that a spiritual heritage can be lost as parents if we become satisfied and take God's blessings for granted or if our children have never heard or even seen the blessings of God. And by the time you reach the book of Judges in the Old Testament, the children of Israel didn't even know who God was. God said, remember, pass it along. Take every advantage. Take every opportunity to invest in the next generation. Paul makes one of the boldest statements of all in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians. If, again, you have last Sunday morning sermon notes, if you have it today, the purple one in your bulletin, it's the same. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul makes one of the boldest statements in all the New Testament when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's incredibly bold. So often we as Christians say, well, look, don't watch me because I'll let you down. I won't, I won't do it right, but boy, keep your eyes on Jesus. And that's absolutely true. But Paul makes one of the boldest statements ever when he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. You watch me. I'll do everything I can to show you Jesus every step of the way so that you see him everywhere you turn. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, similar to Colossians 3, Paul said, fathers, don't exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. When it says we are to bring them up, he infers that children don't automatically grow up to be all that God wants them to be. Have you found that true? I mean, you don't have to teach them to be bad, right? Somehow they just know that instinctively. You spend all of your life teaching them how to what? Do the right thing. Paul said it doesn't happen automatically. It doesn't happen by itself. It's our responsibility as parents to bring them up in the Lord. I've heard parents say, well, I don't want to force religion on my kids. I really want them to choose their own way. Can I be really honest with you? Don't be naive enough to think that your children are grow up in a society that doesn't influence them. I'll guarantee you, if you do not put your stamp of influence on that child, someone else will. It could be humanism out in the world. We live in peer pressure or temptation, but somebody or something will influence them if we don't. It is out there waiting. So the challenge is I want to put my stamp of influence on that child so that they understand the context of how to judge all of those things they're confronted with every day of their life. So that when they're bombarded by this or that, or they see this in the media, or they hear this from their kids, or they hear this at school, or college specifically, especially in the secular campus, I want to be able to make sure they have a foundation to pull this from so that they know how to make right choices, how to make good decisions. Phrase bring them up in Greek is written in an active tense, not in a passive tense. Proverbs 29, 15, a child who gets his own way, none of you have them, I know, but a child who gets his own way brings shame. We've got to be involved. I've said to you before that I shoot trap on Tuesday night when I get the opportunity to do that, and it's been so unbelievably enjoyable to see so many fathers and sons out there. It's one of the reasons I ask you if I could borrow some of your sons. What was interesting is uh, I had a number of people offer that uh, last Sunday. Matter of fact, it was about eight or ten people offered me their children. 
What I'm looking for is one that doesn't have a dad or a mom, but there's a number of you that volunteered, matter of fact, for me to keep them for a while. So I <laughs> thought that was kind of interesting. But it has been enjoyable to see dads take that response. And that doesn't mean to be in the hunting sport, whatever that may be. But dads taking those, those opportunities to, to really spend time with them. And you all remember trying to teach your kids how to fish. You set fishing aside, right? You don't fish and teach your kids how to fish. You just set it all aside and you teach them how. But whatever opportunity there may be to really spend some quality time doing some fun things together. Isaiah said, look, we're all like sheep going astray and we need a direction. We need a father's guidance so that we can understand that. And we as earthly fathers have the opportunity to let them see what God's guidance looks like and how they can live that out on a regular basis. You also see that in Ephesians 4 passage, it's not written as an option. It's not like God saying, now, Dan, let me, let me give you a suggestion. You may want to consider it. You don't have to. But you may want to consider bringing your children up in a godly way. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want to hurt your feelings. You don't want to do it. I get it. But just consider it. Think about it. No, it's a command, not a suggestion. It also means it's a continual job. I've had a lot of parents who want to stop at junior high and then somehow get them when they get a job. It's all the way through the process. Bring them up also means that we're to provide a healthy atmosphere that encourages growth. You also notice that he doesn't say, put them down, hold them back, or help them, or hold them down. He said, bring them up. It's a picture of a growing process. That's why in Colossians 21, he says it different than he does in Ephesians 6. Fathers, don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. And that's why he said, bring them up, not put them down or hold them back. There's some stats in your bulletin. I, I've gotten them years ago, and the, the research I've done doesn't seem to change a whole lot, but it almost it is absolutely staggering when you look at that. Uh, if both parents attend regu- church regularly, 70% of their children will. Dads attend 55%. If moms attend regularly, 15 And if neither attend regularly, 6 That is never meant to be a reflection on moms, but it is meant to point out the influence of dads. And that's huge. The variance between the two is unbelievable. And, and we all grew up in environments where it was the father staying at home and I'm doing my thing. I'm going to the golf course. I'm going hunting. I'm going wherever. And uh, mom, make sure the kids get to Sunday school on time. And make sure the kids get to church and, and all of that. And when you, I look at that, even if you vary the stats a little bit, I, 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 get, I know you can make stats do anything you want. But it's a huge influence that we fathers have on the generation that comes behind us as to whether or not they embrace spiritual things by what they see in us. So what I want to make sure my kids know, number one in your sermon notes, that they're loved. That they are loved. That they are loved by God and that they are loved by me. I want to make sure they understand love. You heard me say before, I I didn't hear my dad say that until I was in my 30s and it had a huge impact on me and, and my drive for life and a lot of other things. And so when I start raising gals, I was going to want to make sure they heard it on a regular basis. Same with my wife. I want to make sure she was going to hear it all the time. They need to know that they are loved by God, but they need to know they are loved by you. Secondly, they need to know and understand Jesus. This is critical to make sure they have their own faith, not your faith. You want to make sure they have their own faith, not your faith. And a lot of that begins in the foundation we lay out at home. 
I don't want to put you on the spot, so I want to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you grew up with family devotions, or how many of you have family devotions? Now, I know that's a foreign term to some people, and for many of us, it's hard to even get the family in the same place for a meal, and and I I get that, and that's a whole other level of maybe we're involved in too much, and maybe they're involved in too much. Kids that are involved in 17 things throughout the week don't make sense to me. But family devotions, at, at some point, having those, those moments of time, this morning you're going to get it, uh, an opportunity to hear that. And, and again, it goes back to Deuteronomy. I'll take advantage of what I get. Could be in the morning, could be on a drive to school, could be on a way to ball practice, could be on a way to cheerleading or, or gymnastics or whatever, but I'm going to take the time to do that. We, every month we provide, every week we provide something here for our children's ministry. Fifth and sixth grade does, seventh and eighth grade does. Every week, every month there's something that is a handout for parents to take and use as a foundation to be able to do that. I had a mom a number of months ago when we uh, established Right Now Media. Uh, so it gave you tons of opportunity. We still do that, right, Ted? It's still available to people. I had a mom write me, said, this is absolutely amazing. I never knew there was this many resources. We're having a hard time where to select. My son and I sit down and watch those things and watch the trailers to figure out what it is that we want to watch. There's so many opportunities to be able to do that, to influence the next generation. Bible apps for kids, whatever whatever medium you can use, but the opportunity to do that is overwhelming. We were in Senegal a few months ago, and we were wrapping up our opportunity to minister to the kids in elementary school, and I had a teacher and the administrator come up to me, I think it was the fourth or the fifth day, and said, I really want to thank you and Jonathan for coming. And I said, well, we come as a team. It's really just how we do it. Our wives wanted to do this, and they're both involved. My wife's children's pastor, so we wanted to do this. He said, no, you don't understand. I'm grateful that you were a guy who came. And I said, I'm still confused. He said, in the Muslim context here, most of them view Christianity as a religion for women. And so when they see a man taking a leadership role, and they say, see men leading, and these children see men taking the initiative in spiritual things, it's a huge influence on them because most of them have been told that Christianity is for women. What that made me wonder is what on earth would have led them to that perception other than so many dads have abdicated that responsibility in the home. And so when they, when they view American Christianity, they assume because it's, now again, we got a boatload of dads here this morning this is unbelievably awesome but when you see christianity being viewed from that context and so many men abdicating their responsibility and the wives taking that spiritual leadership then it makes sense as to how they could ever draw the conclusion that christianity or american christianity was a religion for women if we dads don't take an active role in doing that we have a huge influence not only obviously on our family but maybe even possibly for the world Third thing that I want to make sure that my kids understand is respect, honor. The guys really do understand how to respect women in a rightful and a godly way. And not see them as objects, but see them as someone valued. I want them to hear it from from me, how much I love their mom. Best thing you can ever do for your kids is tell them how much you love your mom. Dads, I, I hope you took the opportunity at some point when you were raising girls to take them on a date. Let them, let them find out what it's like to be treated well, to be treated right, 
to be treated as a, as a godly woman so that they'll know what to look for. Every parent I've ever talked to have different challenges and man, I'd rather raise boys than girls or I'd rather raise girls than boys and it's vice versa depending on what the deal is or what God's entrusted into your care. But you as dads have the opportunity to show them how to be treated, how to be treated right, how to be treated well. Girls, respect for their body and, and specifically respect for authority. Our, our, this generation needs to understand respect as does every generation and it comes from us. We blow off authority. It doesn't matter whatever we say about authority and those around us. They're going to hear that. And they're going to know, I don't need to worry about it either. Number four, I really want to make sure they, I understand and they understand their nature, their bent, their identity. Proverbs 22 is one of the most powerful verses when you read it in really context. When it says, raise up a child. We have translated in King James, raise up a child in the way he should go. And and uh, he'll, he'll return back to that, and he'll come back. It, in the original version, it says, raise up a child according to their bent, according to their nature. How are they wired? What makes them unique? What motivates them? No matter how much they look or act like you, there aren't you. So what makes them unique? And how do you encourage that? And again, it's not according to your bent. I've seen so many parents live through their children's accomplishments and, and encourage them in things that kids really aren't necessarily interested in, but they didn't achieve it and they think they could and, and all of those things. And, and to be able to find out their vent or their bent, it means you obviously spend an enormous amount of time with them to be able to understand specifically how they're wired. Not wired like their brother. They're not wired like their sister. They're not necessarily wired like you. They may look like you. They may have a lot of your attributes and qualities. I, I think I've told you the story before. I remember saying it in the old sanctuary, so it's been a while. When Eric went to marry Aaron, he said, I've been told all along, watch the mom, watch the mom, watch the mom, watch the mom. So he said, for months on, and I watched Connie. And then I married Denny. It freaked me out. Eleven years later now, I'm still living the haunting of that. Every time we're together, he goes, I married Denny. She drives me crazy. He's already said, when we get old and we have to be taken in, I'm on my own. He's already said to Con, I'll take you in for the rest of your life. Den, he is on his own. I had him long enough. Number five, responsibility. I want to make sure they understand responsibility, that they work hard, that they earn a living. We all, how many of you started earning a living at 14 or 15? Huh, really? 16? 17? You didn't start until 7? Okay. Start early. Don't just hand them things. Teach them responsibility. Uh, take responsibility always for their action. Don't always bail them out. Don't enable them. Help them understand how to work responsibly and how to earn a living, how to get through life. I had so many guys in construction say, you have any idea how hard it is to get somebody who understands how to work, how to really work, which end of a hammer to use. I mean, this, things are endlessly simple. And number six, I want to make sure they understand discipline. I want to make sure they understand discipline done right. That's what Paul's concerned about here in Colossians 3. Don't embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. But remember, discipline needs to be done. 
I've had parents, well, we don't discipline our killed children. No kidding. Like, we didn't know that. <laughs> it's one of the most amazing statements I've ever heard out of a parent's mouth. We don't discipline our children. We all know that. Colossians says, don't embitter them, though, but it needs to be done. Proverbs 13, I think it's in your sermon notes, whoever spares the rod hates his children. The one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. And again, done in the right way. Endure hardship as discipline, Hebrews 12 said. God is treating you as issue. What children are not disciplined by their father? That's a really legitimate question. What children are not disciplined by their father? Only illegitimate children, he would say. True sons and daughters. Moreover, we all have had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as to what seemed best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we can share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who've been trained by it. Our children, we, we, we can have discussions all day as, as far as spanking and, and physical discipline and all. We can, we'll all debate it, we'll all disagree on it, or we'll agree on it one way or the other. I think the Bible is clear, very clear on it. But they need to understand that there's pain associated with sin. And all you have to do is look at the cross. Now again, pain right, done right, done wisely, done well, done with instruction, but we're going to celebrate Easter and Good Friday, and all you have to do is look at the cross and know that there's sin, or there's pain associated with sin. And we have to figure out as parents, we have to make sure that we really do it in a godly, biblical way. My goodness, are we seeing it? The repercussions are enormous of the lack of discipline in, in society around us. And number seven. I really want to make sure they understand gratitude. Now, I chose seven because seven's a biblical number, so I thought you would like that for that reason. I could have given you 20. I get that. But I, that one I, I just could not leave out. They need to understand gratitude, and we can help them do that. Colossians 3.15, be thankful. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, give thanks to God the Father. Colossians 4.2, be watchful and thankful. We need to understand and help them understand we need to be people of gratitude and we need to help them be people of gratitude. Now, as crazy as this sounds, I said to you last Sunday morning, I'm going to do something different that I've never done before, but I'll tell you why in a moment. We're going to move to the last few pieces of Colossians chapter 3 and 4, and I'll tell you why. I want to move to the next section for, section for a specific reason. I'm going to bypass one. But if you see in verse 22 to 4, one, Paul continues his train of thought. He moves from the home to the marketplace. Now, he spent, we spent two weeks on the home, four weeks on the home, two in marriage and two in raising children. He moves in verse 22 from the home to the marketplace. He says, slaves, obey your earthly masters and everything, and do it not only when their eyes are on you to win their favor, but do it with sincerity of heart. We offer a, a, a class called Work as Worship, and it, it's a great reminder of how important when I live out the values that I have embraced as a follower of Christ, all out of Colossians chapter 3, I've gotten rid of this stuff and I embrace these things. One of the best places to demonstrate that or flesh it out is obviously in the home. One of the other best places to flesh that out and work it out is in the workplace. Doing your best. I'm a believer whether I'm the employee or the employer. 
I am doing absolutely everything I can to live out my godly principles, the transition that I'm in, in my relationship with Christ, even if I just take Colossians 3, and I want to live that out to the people who work for me or the people I work for. Not when their eyes are on me. But I know that I'm working for a higher authority and I'm working for God himself. Whatever you do, do it with all your heart as working for God. For he says in verse 24, it is Christ that you are serving. And that, that will dramatically change the way I view work, the way I view my employees, and the way I view my employer if I really embrace that particular piece of Scripture. But I want to move to the end. In chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, so you have your Bible in front of you. I think it's going to be on the screen. Every time I read one of Paul's writings, especially when I was a brand new believer and I read Paul's writings, it almost seemed like I got a lot more to say, but I got to say it really quick, so I'll get to the end. And so he has in all these rambling final thoughts that he shares. I see it in almost all of Paul's writings. Fascinating the way he writes. And it seems that as he does that in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, devote yourselves to prayer, be watchful and thankful, pray for us too that God will open a door for our message, that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. While they may seem to be random closing thoughts, they're really powerful. One of the overarching premises of the message of Jesus was to take this life-transforming gospel, the one that changed your life everywhere we go, all the way to the ends of the earth. That was the final challenge to the disciples. This changed your life. This message has radically transformed everything about you. And I want you to take this message everywhere you go, ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's what we've been doing for the last 2,000 years. You and I hold the answers to life in our hands. Right? You know that. You and I have the answers to life in our hands. We have the privilege and the responsibility of sharing it. And so Paul tells us this. Pray that God will open doors of opportunity. That when they open, we'll proclaim the message clearly. Be wise in how you do it. Make the most of every opportunity and do it with grace, not condemnation. See what he says? Make the most of every opportunity. Pray that God will open up those doors. Be wise in how you do it and do it with grace and not condemnation. That prayer and that challenge, as in all of Scripture, was not reserved just for Paul and it wasn't reserved just for those that he was writing to. That's for all of us. I believe that God is brilliant in the flow of that coming out of the flow of chapter 3 and I'll tell you why. If we don't get our spiritual act together and change our behavior, and if we don't change our marriages and our homes and get it together within the context of our marriages and homes, then we honestly don't have a lot to offer by way of example to a world that's so filed up, it's dying for what works. Does that make sense? 
I honestly believe that God is brilliant in putting these together as he does in all of Scripture for a variety of reasons. Uh, With all of my heart and soul, when I sat down on Thursday morning, which is my writing morning, and I began to look at this section of Scripture, I thought, well, i got to finish it. I want to finish Colossians, and and I don't know what to do with Easter and and all of that. And I thought, oh, God, you're brilliant. How did I not see this the other 800 times I've read Colossians? You're a genius. Because essentially what you're saying, if we don't get our spiritual act together in being able to get rid of the junk and put on these things and model it in our home, in our marriages, in our workplace, then we really don't have a lot to offer a world who is so fouled up they don't know what works. Christianity works. Faith in Christ works, right? And you and I have the opportunity to offer that. But if we don't let it work in our lives and our marriages and our families, we have nothing to offer a world out of control. God does. I get that. But he chose to give it to us. You notice that Paul doesn't even pray that God saves lost. Paul does not pray God save lost people. You notice that? You see what he does say? God help me to share the truth. Help me to make the most of every opportunity that I have. That I do it with grace and not arrogance and condemnation. How many times, and maybe none of you have ever, I'm sure none of you have ever done this, but you, you, you're with a non-believer and you're seeing their behavior. You know you're going to hell for that. As opposed to saying to them or helping them through the process of understanding what it is that Christ offers for that kind of behavior. Doing it with grace and, and not condemnation Paul encourages us to share the truth with confidence and not silence. I've heard people say, well, I don't want to offend everyone. You know, faith is a private matter. No, it's not. Faith is not a private matter. Religion is not, I don't care what anybody may say out there, religion and faith in Christ is not a private matter. It was always meant to be shared. Every single day of our lives, every place we go, Tozer said, if you don't do it with words, or, or do it with your life, and every once in a while, do it with words. Obviously, his inf- or saying the influence of our life is even more powerful sometimes than the things we say, which is why I thought, God, you're brilliant when you put this in the context of marriage and home and family and work. The next two weeks, you're going to have an opportunity. You have unprecedented opportunity. You don't even, <laughs> there are times you don't even have to pray for the door to be open. It'll be open. What are you doing for Easter? Going to church. Why? You have the opportunity to tell them. You pray for the opportunities, but I'm telling you, they're going to be there. Next Sunday, we're going to come and celebrate Palm Sunday. We're going to talk about worship and adoration. We're going to end with singing and celebration. Take a deacon's offering to help the needs of people in our community, in our faith community here. We're just going to have a great time. And then Easter Sunday morning, the gospel message is going to be shared. And it's a perfect opportunity to invite someone. Movies like The Son of God, Noah, is the most unbiblical movie that anyone can imagine. The only thing that's correct about it is there was a man named Noah and there was a flood. This Hollywood's version of that. But instead of arguing about it, use it as a platform. Hey, did you see the movie Noah? Yeah, what do you think? Well, let me tell you, do you you know the real story? Just let me share it with you. We can argue all day long as to how unbiblical it is. We already know that. Hollywood produced it. 
But instead of doing that and, and, and being negative and nasty about it, say, yeah, let me tell you the real story. Let me tell you what really happened. Did you, you ever read the Old Testament? Man, there's some great stuff in there. Use it as a platform to share. If a 12-year-old girl that we saw a couple of weeks ago on a video clip had a passion for lost children in her community that eventually became a church that a church in Butler, Pennsylvania could partner with and make a difference forever in the name of Jesus, what about us? A few weeks ago, I had the opportunity. There was a good friend of mine who was sitting in my office, and we were talking about the fact that faith was never meant to be a private thing. It was always meant to be shared, and how much he loved sharing his faith. And he said to me, you know, I have a picture of what it's like to go to heaven in my head, and, and I've often thought when I stand before Jesus, it's got to be the most amazing thing I've ever experienced in all of my life. What I can't figure out or put together at times is, with all the joy that goes with that, what will it be like if I look around and I realize that the people that I was with every day of my life, my family or at work, or that I influence in some way, aren't there? I'm not sure how to equate all the joy that goes with Jesus to recognizing that and how it all fits out together, but I thought... I'm with people every day of my life. And I'm influencing them on a regular basis. And I can't even imagine getting to heaven and seeing Jesus. And then looking around and knowing that there were people that I had time with and opportunities to and relationship with. And I never, ever, ever told them about Christ. And I don't want that. So I'm going to do this. I'm going to make the most of every opportunity. I'm going to do it with grace. I'm going to season it with salt. I'm going to make them want more. I'm going to whet their appetite. I'm going to share the truth so that they can enjoy what I'm enjoying and will enjoy for all eternity. God's brilliant in how he lays out his word. And he gives you and I the opportunity as moms and dads and partners in our marriage to demonstrate the difference that Jesus can make in a world that is dying answers. Paul said, make the most of every one of those opportunities. Let's pray. Father, we love you. I love you so much, and I thank you for your word. I just, I'm overwhelmed after all of these years of studying it, all these years of unpacking it, the things that you reveal in such a unique, powerful way. And so I'm so delighted that it never loses its flavor. It never loses its power. It never loses its wonder. In a few minutes, our kids and family in Upstreet are going to experience um, what humility looks like and how to, how to live that out, one of the tough things to do. And, and so I trust that as we as moms and dads and grandparents influence the next generation, help us to do it with everything we have. Thank you again for your word and power and for the opportunity in these weeks that we have to really share the difference that Jesus has made in our lives to a world who really is desperate for answers. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.